most most people know glaucom flecken you know yeah and i actually i love him i think he is really perpetuating this myth of cardiology versus nephrology and i think we need to fight that because here we are sitting on this podcast and we're all talking about aggressive diuresis and decongestion at the expense of creatinine but not necessarily kidney health and so i feel like they think that we're like button heads but in the grand scheme of things i don't think it's true to be fair That's wasn't there hashtag. wasn't there a nephrologist that like punched a cardiologist yep in ohio yeah, yeah. yeah. right like, yeah. so I, I don't think he's that far off <laughs> Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than to take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have nine. Hey everyone, my name's Nan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I tweet at Captain Chloride. My only disclosure here is I was an early adopter of acetazolamide, and we put it on our diuretic protocol almost four years ago at this point. Wow, very interesting. Sophie. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm an assistant professor and clinical nephrologist at the University of Colorado in Denver, VA. I don't have any conflicts of interest and we're not using it that often, except for when someone's got a metabolic alkalosis. And Jordy, it's been a minute since we've seen you. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be back. Uh, so I'm Jordy Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I tweet at Jordy underscore BC. My only disclosure is that I've only ever used acetazolamide for self-treating altitude sickness. And they're right there with you. We have two experts tonight. We have uh, a diuretic sharpshooter, Dr. David Ellison. David? Hi, my name is Dave Ellison. I'm a nephrologist at Oregon Health and Science University. I tweet at DHE Kidney. I'm sorry that the Twitter handle is a little boring. And uh, I've been interested in diuretics for many years, but actually haven't used acetazolamide all that many times. Excellent. And uh, returning guest, uh, Dr. Ziyan. Hi, I'm Balak Ziyan. I'm a cardiologist at the University of California, Los Angeles, and at the VA Los Angeles. And my handle is uh, at Bobak, B-O-B-A-C-K. Excellent, excellent. So uh, tonight we're talking about the ADVOR trial, which is uh, something that we don't see in the... Uh, am I right to say that acute decompensated heart failure seems to be underreported in the literature? It's just for as <laughs> often as we see it in the hospital, the quality and the frequency of data on it seems to be scant. It just seems to be out of proportion to its importance in hospital life. Fair? I, I think you're underselling all those ultrafiltration studies that came out about five and six years ago. Ten. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a minute. And we point to the dose trial, and that's still kind of the highest quality data. And that, what is that? Twenty? What year is that? 2013, 2014? Uh, 2011, I thought. 2011. Um, oh, great. So that's my point is that we the, the, this, this bedrock data that really was a negative trial, right? No difference for the primary outcomes is 
The highest quality data that we have for this condition, acute decompensated heart failure, one of the most common hospital admissions. It was the clearly the benchmark that they used in designing this trial. It just feels like not as much is happening in that field as should be happening. Oh, I, I actually, I, I actually totally disagree with that. I, I think there's been a. I mean, I wish that the uh, kidney community were as active with randomized controlled trials. I think Jordy mentioned there's the the CARES trial about ultrafiltration. There are a number of trials of many different things, including um, uh, uh, atrial natriuretic peptides and and other interventions for acute decompensate heart failure. I think the problem is that most of them have have not been very positive. Um, But but I, I think that there's been a lot going on in this space. And I'm super excited by the the data that's that's out there. Excellent. Excellent. This is a diuretic trial looking at patients that come in with significant volume overload and they were randomized to acetazolamide. This is a uh, one of the few times we've tested it in a randomized controlled trial, the theory of sequential nephron blockade. But when we think about sequential nephron blockade, we usually are thinking about uh, thiazide's blocking the DCT after the loop. And this is kind of flipping that on its head and using acetazolamide to block proximal tubule reabsorption of bicarbonate. Bobak, are you using uh, any acetazolamide? Or let me rephrase that. Had you used this beforehand? Only in the setting of uh, metabolic alkalosis. I think in general, thiazide uh, diuretics are are what I'm most commonly exposed to or use for augmenting diuresis. So that's kind of what surprised me. You know, here's the, the more conventional technique. The thing that people use all the time is thiazide following loops. And it's surprising that the first RCT on that, if I'm, am I right that there's no placebo-controlled trials of sequential nephron blockade with a thiazide? Yeah, I'm not aware of. The 3T trial was kind of, it was comparing metolazone versus chlorothiazide versus tolvaptan added on to loop diuretic therapy. So it wasn't placebo controlled necessarily, but it was comparing various agents. Why don't you take a moment, just tell me a little bit more about the 3T trial. Just help me out. So it was metolazone. Yeah, yeah. So 3T trial was, it was a small trial. It was a single center trial, maybe 60 some odd patients admitted with decompensated heart failure. These patients were thought to be resistant to furosemide. I don't remember exactly how they defined that in this study. I believe it was a positive urine output to some degree with greater than or equal to 240 milligrams of furosemide. Those patients were then randomized to either receiving metolazone chlorothiazide or tolvaptan. One of the issues is the primary outcome of that trial was weight loss. And so when you look at some of the outcomes of these trials, you have to be careful what they're looking at. And um, so for example, tolvaptan showed significant weight loss, but we don't necessarily equate that with better outcomes because you're getting an aquaresis. You're not getting a naturesis. Generating a naturesis. You're not getting that negative sodium balance. The other trial that was not exactly this, but did randomize to the addition of metolazone is the CARES trial. And one of the differences between that trial and the original dose trial is they used a much more aggressive diuretic escalation regimen predicated on the home baseline dose of diuretics. Dave, Dave, why don't you just rewind a little bit and just take us right back to the fundamentals. So the CARES trial is an ultrafiltration versus diuretic trial? Versus diuretics. And it followed on, you know, in the heels of the dose trial. And in the dose trial, that compared continuous infusion versus bolus therapy and a high dose versus so-called low dose of loop diuretics. So in the CARES trial, Interestingly, even though the dose trial didn't suggest a difference in efficacy between 
continuous infusion and boluses, their regimen included a continuous infusion of furosemide. And then if you escalated it all in terms of your need for diuretics, you added metolazone either once or twice a day. I mean, I do think that one of the reasons that was a negative trial is because they used a very effective diuretic regimen that included metolazone as well as furosemide. The CARES trial showed no difference between ultrafiltration and diuretics, though there was increased adverse events with the ultrafiltration, yes, right? Exactly. That was the headline yeah. Yeah. finding of the CRESS trial. And but, but you're but you're saying that these guys were being more effective with you know, uh, chemical diuresis than anybody has ever done in an RCT before with aggressive use of sequential nephron blockade. Yeah, I think that's fair. As nephrologists, we always point to caress and say, aha, we don't need to ultrafiltrate people. I think it's worth stating they had a very rigid ultrafiltration protocol in that trial. There's been other studies like Unload, Curie, et cetera, that have shown positive results. The other thing that's worth pointing out is similar to ADVOR, which we'll talk about. This is upfront therapy. This is you hit the door and you get randomized to one of these trials. This is not diuretic resistance where, especially as nephrologists, I think we come in when people are not responding to initial therapy. That's the case. Of Advor, that was also the case in Caress. Yep. Your statement is that using Caress to argue against ultrafiltration in a patient who's diuretic resistant is probably not the right application of that study because they were not just, they were rolling all comers, not patients that were just diuretic resistant. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the point with diuretic resistance is you ask five different people, they're going to do five different things because outside of adding a thiazide, your guess is as good as mine. There's other things that we do, and I'm sure Dr. Ellison and others on this call do different things, hypertonic saline, acetazolamide, et cetera. But I don't think you're wrong necessarily to ultrafiltrate people in that situation. Interesting. Bobak, do you have any other thoughts before we dive into this study? Uh, I was just going to say the uh, ACCHA guidelines that were updated in 2022, they give a class one recommendation for thiazides for augmentation. But they, it's based on expert opinion, and they, they say there's, there's really limited data. It's all observational that you have to watch out for sort of hypokalemia. It's a very general statement, but they don't make mention of sort of other strategies that people might try. So Pfizer's got a class one recommendation, like a 1B or 1C type of thing? 1B non-randomized. 1B non-randomized. Interesting. Nine, why are, why are you guys using why were you guys using acetazolamide before this? What was that based on? The way our diuretic protocol is, it's escalating doses of a loop diuretic. Then you add a thiazide, similar to what Caress was doing. For us, it's always made sense, and I think for a lot of people that, as we know, the vast majority of your sodiums absorb proximally. That's the case in normal people. That's upregulated in people with heart failure. And it's always made sense if you block that, you're going to get more naturesis as long as you're blocking distal sites of sodium reabsorption. So we've been using it and very successfully using it for the last few years, purely based on the biologic plausibility. And as nephrologists, we have the antidote right in the back pocket. We we can always ultrafiltrate you. And there's just like this trial is going to show, there's no harm in, I think, using these adjunct measures to try to avoid dialysis. Okay, excellent. Okay, now I want you to take us away in some methods. Yeah, so this was a multi-center, randomized, parallel group, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. This was investigator-initiated. It was not industry-sponsored. I mean, Biggest old lights. Biggest old lights. Biggest old lights wasn't, wasn't coming right. up with the big dollars yeah. for this trial. Yeah. Okay, not surprising. <laughs> The 50 cents a tablet. It was 27 sites, I believe, all in Belgium. And we kind of talked about a little bit how it was designed. So essentially, uh, these were patients that were admitted because of acute decompensated heart failure, plus at least one clinical sign of volume overload. And the way that was defined was more than trace peripheral edema. 
because we know how good the grading system is for peripheral edema. They, that would be pleural fusion or ascites. And they had to have an N-terminal pro-BNP of more than 1,000 or a BNP greater than 250 in order to be eligible for the trial. Okay, I just want to make sure I got this right. They had to have a clinical sign of fluid overload, which could be edema, ascites, or pleural fusion. Plus, they had to have biochemical evidence in either a BNP or a pro-BNP. Or an NT-pro-BNP, yep. They also had to be on oral maintenance therapy of at least 40 milligrams of furosemide or furosemide equivalents as an outpatient. So this isn't de novo heart failure, presumably. These are patients who are on maintenance diuretic therapy with a loop diuretic as an outpatient. And they had to be on therapy for at least a month prior to randomization. And the main exclusion criteria here is a number of things. So acute coronary syndrome, congenital heart disease, heart transplant. You couldn't have an LVAD, systolic blood pressure less than 90 or a MAP less than 65, expected use of inotropes, vasopressors, or nitroprusside during the duration of the trial, an EGFR less than 20, or renal replacement therapy or ultrafiltration prior to study initiation. The other thing that's interesting about the exclusion is you're excluded if you received greater than 80 milligrams of furosemide equivalents as an IV bolus prior to randomization. So if you went into the ER, they give you 100 milligrams of IV Lasix, you were excluded from this study. These all sound like totally reasonable uh, exclusion criteria, and their inclusion criteria sound like most of the patients I see with decompensated heart failure. Any, anybody see any red flags in the exclusion or inclusion? I, I just wanted to uh, add something that you may be uh, going to get to, Nyan, but uh, one thing different in this trial than caress and dose and a number of other trials of acute decomps at heart failure. Most of those trials were, were heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and most of them were less than 35 or 40. And this allowed people with at least moderately preserved ejection fraction and low ejection fraction and with a post hoc analysis of the difference, but they they matched them. So this is this is different in that way, um, and that may have implications for the outcomes, I think. That's right. Yeah. So they stratified people with a cutoff of 40. So stratified people at less than 40% ejection fraction or greater than 40% ejection fraction. I'm going to just call out that the EGFR of less than 20 is the exclusion. I'm pretty impressed with that. So many of these trials exclude people with any kidney dysfunction, or at least with moderate kidney dysfunction. So this is much more representative of the patients we see. Uh, as David had mentioned, it's the HEF-PEF and HEF-MEF patients that are the ones that we're following in clinic trying to prevent from this hospitalization. I didn't give a most careful read to the protocol, but did they say, did they care about adherence? Like if someone was prescribed an outpatient diuretic, there was no recording of like adherence. No. In, like, Bel in Belgium, everybody's fully adherent. I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure if you were aware of that. Yeah. Everybody takes their medicines in Belgium. <laughs> uh, what was the story with SGLT2 inhibitors? They were... Not allowed. Not allowed. Couldn't be on SGLT2 inhibitors. If they, were, if they were on it as an outpatient, it wasn't just that they weren't allowed as an inpatient. If they, they were excluded from the trial if they had an outpatient prescription of SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah. That's correct. It was just mainly related to the timing of the trial because the trial started before SGLT2 inhibitors had been initiated. So it would have then skewed the data had they included it. It's just unfortunate, though, the, the timing of it all. I'm not sure I'm buying that. Like, it's a it's a randomized trial. They should have, it, I mean, presumably half the people would be on SGLT2 and half the people would not. I mean, it would be an interesting high, uh, factor to look at, but it almost decreases the generalizability of this trial because we're looking at a future where everybody's going to well, be on these drugs. Well, they said they didn't want another proximal tubular yeah. 
agent. So that that's the point. Is it though? The editorial by Michael Felker made that explicitly clear that it makes it really hard to interpret what to do now because, as you say, almost everybody's going to be on SGLT2s. So it's confusing. But I I think Sophie's right about you know, it. Really did start before. SGLT2s, and that would have really confounded things, I think, to start them halfway through. And it would have ended up being a weird era effect, right? Because this would have been introduced later, and then you end up seeing problems with randomization in that setting, because at that point, you've already randomized two-thirds of your trial, because I think that the later time points of this trial were, it was probably longer than they expected it to be because of COVID and whatnot. Uh, So I I think it would have been a very odd group of people who would have been on it. I I think you'll probably mention later, but I think three people or something slipped through who had S JLT2s? Yeah, I didn't see that. That's right. Excellent. I feel like everybody who's coming in with all this exciting data is like, like, oh, SGLT2s, because they were so excited with what was coming forth. And then it's like, SGLT2 does that, and it does that too, and it does that. And then suddenly it like makes a lot of that, these, this really, these really neat results a little bit more moot. But but all, the study is not looking at mortality or, or heart failure rehospitalization. I mean, those were, you know, secondary tertiary outcomes. What you're looking at is, you know, decongestion. And so I, I think, I, I don't think it reduces the validity of, of the findings in this case. Though we do have acute decompensated heart failure data now with SGLT2 inhibitors. It's pretty impressive. Like that stuff works even for decongesting patients. Like it, yeah, but although it's conflicted, right? So one study showed that it was predominantly an aquaresis because of glycosuria. One study showed that there's increased naturesis because of improved diuretic efficiency. And so I don't think it's completely clear if, if you're actually getting decongestion with those inpatient yet. I don't know. It just seems like it's everything, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I you know. <laughs> We, we use it we use them both simultaneously so i'm i'm not poo-pooing them i'm just saying i don't think it takes away from the findings of this study yeah that was going to be my next question is there any reason not to use them both together other than excessive volume depletion yeah i don't I, ex- except for the fact that you know the because of um you know need for npo status in the hospital relatively fre- frequently it can be hard to continue SGLT2 inhibitors in, in some of these patients. Not necessarily the ones that were randomized to this trial, but you know, in a lot of heart failure patients in the hospital, a lot of times they have different various procedures where they need to be NPO. My real question is, is this really, when we start somebody, should we just be putting them on a larger diuretic, a larger loop? As opposed I think, to our I think we're current gonna be, I think we're going to have a lot to say about that. I think it's going to be all right, all right, all right. Sophia. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're onto something that's that's pretty important. Uh, Naya, why don't you keep going? Okay, so then patients are randomized one to one to either acetazolamide or placebo. So their oral loop diuretic is discontinued, and on day one or at the time of randomization, they get two times their home dose of loop diuretic in IV form which was a one-time IV administration plus placebo or 500 milligrams of acetazolamide as an IV bolus. Then subsequently on day two, the home dose of loop diuretic was then converted to IV form split into BID dosing, split six hours apart. And again, placebo versus acetazolamide, the same 500 milligrams as an IV bolus one time. And the same thing on day three. Now the caveat being on the morning of day three, If a patient was not decongested and had urine output less than 3.5 liters, then dose escalation was allowed. And so that was either increasing their loop diuretic or adding chlorothaladone or ultrafiltration if they needed it. And that's the last day of the protocolized. That's the last day of the protocol. That's right. And that's an endpoint, right? If they have to be escalated, they're considered a failed, right? That was a... a 
part of the endpoints. They were still included in the results, and then there was just a caveat whether they needed escalation of therapy or not. That was a finding. That was a not, one of Correct. the articles was the need for that. But the protocol ends on day three. The protocol ends on day three. And success is, okay, more than three and a half liters of decongestion. I've got a question for you, Nyan, about... Um, yeah. uh, this has confused me ever since dose. And I've reached out to Michael Felker to ask him. And I just reached out to Wilfred Mullins to ask him. And I still don't understand. So, you know, this says two times the oral home daily dose. I think home dose. And Correct. dose said 2.5 times for the higher dose. Most people are on BID furosemide when they're on furosemide. So let's say you're on 40 BID. What was the first dose given to these people on day one? Was it 80 or was it 160? In other words, was it twice the, the daily dose or twice each individual dose? Yeah, that wasn't clear to me either. I don't know if anybody else knows. Usually the daily dose, but I, I, can't, I don't know the product. They're not slinging 160 milligrams. Come on. That ain't happening. <laughs> it, it was con- the first day, I guess they said only one dose, right? Right. They split it. Yeah. So I, when I asked him about that, he, he's arguing that this is, they're trying to do a pragmatic trial that will be easy for people to use. He said, most of these people, you're going to get to give it to them in the afternoon. And so one dose is what's reasonable to give for the first day. And they're giving the big bang. Full 160. Well, the, do- the two times the home dose. Although the, the max bolus dose of loop diuretic allowed was five milligrams of bumetanide. So- Theoretically, 100 milligrams of IV furosemide. No, 200 milligrams. It's 40 to 1, right? No, but it's IV. IV, it's only 20 to 1? I think at their adjustment thing, they say 40 to 1, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. 20, 20 to 1 for torsamide. And I know that the European group... Well, is, no, 2 to 1 for torsamide. Uh, oh, was, no, I'm sorry. With bumetanide. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, the European group is very... Because I got in a fight with them one time, and, and I didn't... I ended up losing, I think. You know, we always say that, you know, that IV is twice as effective as oral, and they made the point that there really there's very little evidence for that. That comes from the original, you know, pharmacokinetics by Craig Brader. So they don't, they, in fact, in, in, in several papers, they actually assume dose equivalence. Although anecdotally, that just doesn't feel right, does it? No. I, I think the oral bioavailability is so erratic, varied, and, and oral furosemide, you have no idea, but they do yeah. have a, in figure S2, they say bullets of loop diuretic limited to five milligrams of bumetanide or a hundred milligrams of furosemide. Okay. Table S10 tells you that the initial randomization dose of IV furosemide was 120. So if we're thinking that that baseline dose of furosemide, as we saw on table one, is 60, is that 30 twice a day or 60 twice a day? Did they need to be on 40 milligrams twice a day to be even enrolled in the trial? No, just 40. Just 40 40 milligrams of Lasix per week, you know, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) So that's an odd dose, right? 30 twice a day? Do you think the clinicians who were instituting this all understood this better than we did? There's a very simple flow diagram I'm showing you guys. It says day one, give twice the home dose IV. But that doesn't clarify anything that we were just discussing. I honestly, I, what I see people doing is they just double whatever their dose is and they make that IV. I think, I think that, I think that's what they're doing too. They give 80 IV twice that, a day. That's what I think people do. I, I mean, I just, it, it's what it is, is it's such a fundamental question. It just should be taken care of in the methods. They should just describe it. They're like, if the patient was on this, we gave this, right? They had to, I mean, yeah. in the protocol, it's not clear. My thinking is that, at least anecdotally, I see way too many 
patients, including heart failure patients, on furosemide once daily. And I wonder if this is just not something people are thinking that hard about because they don't have that really concerned with the nuance of many people are misprescribed once versus twice daily. If you're thinking really hard about that issue and that people don't really think that deeply about the dosing, perhaps this is a legitimate issue that could have popped up in the randomization. Okay, let's move on. Uh, in addition, every patient received three grams of magnesium sulfate, I believe, and 500 cc's of dextrose. This was in order to mitigate the electrolyte losses that you get with acetazolamide. And every day, the treating physician calculated a congestion score, and this ranged from zero to 10. The way they define congestion is slightly different than some of the other studies that have been published. In this case, uh, again, so successful decongestion was defined as no more than trace pitting edema, no pleural fusion, no ascites. There was a four-point scale on edema, three-point scale on pleural fusions, three-point scale on ascites. And again, to achieve adequate decongestion, they had to have a score of zero or one on that decongestion scale. Do you think people were getting ultrasounds and chest x-rays to prove this? They, they did. They did mention that if there was a clinical suspicion for either of those, then ultrasound or a chest radiograph was done to confirm. Yes, yeah, so I have problems with this decongestion score. It's not, it's something they created and not validated. And they decided to, to create this measure. And so we know these physical exam signs that were picked are, are not sensitive or specific and then to use that as a marker for like response is also not very helpful especially when the trial doesn't even give us the urine output even though it seems like in the protocol they recorded it or the weight data wasn't provided to show us like weight differences they sort of emphasize this score in the initial paper i thought we i thought we did we did get they they did do yeah yeah it was 0.5 kilograms in the end to steal the result but uh jordy oh sorry (laughs) It's there. <laughs> oh, sorry. I agree with you. I, I, in terms of the subjectivity of this, I'm surprised they didn't throw in JVP. Yeah. Clinical trials, this is always hard. I was surprised, you know, in dose, the primary outcome was change in symptoms. And my understanding was that was partly pushed by the NIH. Um, and, and, you know, people like patient-reported outcomes. But there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, there's so much interest in decongestion, and yet uh, uh, that there's, there's, you know, it's hard to define what that is. And in this paper I wrote with Mullins and Jeff Testani and others, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how you quantify this. The good thing here is this was randomized and blinded. So if there were biases or problems, it should have fallen out. And, and I don't think it's crazy. I, I'm, I don't know that I see that many pearl effusions going away in three days. So that kind of or ascites or even yeah. ascites. So I was yeah. I was worried yeah. about that. Can diuretics even really get at that acutely? I worried about that. No. I worried about yeah, that. That's a good call. That's a good call. And so my understanding is the funder of this trial also pushed for the decongestion score to be the primary outcome. That wasn't the intention of the authors initially. Yeah. They were yeah. looking for fluid out, but urine output, or, or they were looking at nature And it really does make me think anybody who's coming in, um, who's being decongested in that period of time, like think of your patients and trying to decongest them. It's 72 hours is nothing. Yeah, that's fast. When I was looking at the dose trial again, the dose trial's symptom score was a visual 
analog scale, zero to a hundred. And the patients would put a little dot for like how they compared each day. And then they did the area under the curve of what they drew. That's how they recorded the symptoms. But I think, you know, in heart failure studies, the really standardized measure, if you're going to get at sim- symptomology would be the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire. And they might not have so, had oh, we're coming back to that. Hey, Joel, you've got a good job for that one. Another plug for Dr. Spiritus. Yeah, that's right. We're going to get him. Well, we're going to have him well funded by the end. But but that but that's supposed to be both responsive and sensitive, and doesn't depend on. You're basically looking at a peripheral edema score at three days. But they said they trained some cardiologists. There was no JVP, and and they, they didn't really say what portion of patients got the imaging or how there were changes and fusions or ascites. But um, a questionnaire would have been easier to administer and less costly than all this imaging that is not very useful. And then it's also falsely reassuring our hospitalists to think that in 72 hours, we're going to be addressing someone's pleural effusion ascites. Yeah. They said they based the power, I thought, on dose. On dose, yeah. yeah. So 15% for the the placebo. Which is valid, and I I do respect that. I just, I I really feel like this was going to fail in just such a huge portion of patients. It's hard to, to judge. Well, they're expecting to fail, you know, in 85%. It'd be interesting to see what, um, how many patients had pleural effusions and how many patients had ascites and how significant they were. Because I think if we got that information, be like, man, I don't really believe any of this. We're going to say it resolved in that period of time. Half of the patients had pleural effusions and 8 to 9% had ascites at baseline. What else we got? <laughs> we need to get through these <laughs> methods eventually. Yeah, so the, the primary outcome we already talked about was successful decongestion at 72 hours. Uh, there was um, a secondary composite endpoint, which was all-cause mortality, heart failure, rehospitalization during a three-month follow-up, and then duration of hospitalization during the index admission, and then a um, tertiary outcome, which was essentially a composite of all-cause mortality and heart failure rehospitalization at three months. There was also a number of pre-specified adverse events that they were interested in, uh, severe metabolic acidosis being one that was defined as a serum bicarbonate level less than 12. I think it's important to say that if a patient's bicarb was less than 20, they were encouraged to give supplemental sodium bicarb. Hmm. Renal events, which was defined as um, doubling of your creatinine, and as well as hypokalemia, which was less than three millimoles per liter, and then hypotension, which which was defined as a systolic blood pressure less than eighty five millimeters mercury. I'm curious, just really quick, from the from the creatinine change perspective, what what are your limits these days when you're trying to diarrhea somebody about how high a serum creatinine can go before you're going to start to panic? Or tell them to stop. I never panic, but I, but I do get nervous when it doubles. When you're uvolemic? There are problems with all of this. The, the data is, is largely a retrospective analyses from controlled trials, but I think those data are pretty consistent that if you're decongesting, then you can tolerate a substantial increase in creatinine and it may actually be okay. It may, may portend better prognosis, just like we think with ACE inhibitors and, and, and kidney disease sometimes. But if you're, if you're really diuretic resistant, the worst thing, renal function in that group portends a very poor prognosis. So that's going back to the old worsening renal function is a bad thing, but it's probably a bad thing for those people who are really sick and you can't get decongested. I mean, that's my approach. It really depends on how successfully you're decongesting them. Yeah, so we, we 
almost ignore creatinines when we're actually decongesting people with pure cardiorenal syndrome. Essentially, we're looking for other things. Are they septic? Did they get an antibiotic and they have AIN? Do they have embolic disease from their atheroembolite? You know, whatever. We look for other causes. You know, 50% is what people cite. But again, as Dr. Ellison was mentioning, this is based on, you know, these retrospective studies. The other thing that's important, we talked about how, you know, this seems quick. The 72 hours seems quick. We know that if you don't address decongestion within 48 hours, not only does it lead to worse outcomes, you actually start getting increase uh, biomarkers of tubular injury. So, you know, Kim one NGAL, et cetera, start rising within 48 hours. So that brings me to another question, because I typically say 1.5 to 2 liters in 24 hours is my typical goal. And it's like pretty standard. Are you bigger than that, Nan? We don't have a limit. We do whatever's needed. Now, in Caress, for example, they used 5 liters. So greater than 5 liters, they would de-escalate therapy. We kind of do it on a case-by-case basis. I don't know if others do it differently. Dose was 3 to 5, but it was urine output. It wasn't net. I think the other thing is net eyes and nose have shown to basically be crap. Like it, it's... It hasn't been associated with with outcomes because it's measured so poorly in the hospital. Right. But if it's reliably, you feel like it's pretty reliable. But if you're drinking, that's all electrolyte-free water. Sure. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. So there's a whole, a whole other thing we could talk about, which which is you know the urine sodium excretion and, and rapid measurement of that. But I mean, I think that the the intake of fluids is so often irrelevant to your attempt to remove the sodium from the person. Interesting. We have the adverse outcomes, all the endpoints. Anything interesting in the statistical analysis? We kind of already talked about it. They estimated a 15% success rate in the placebo group based on the the dose trial. And they almost arbitrarily came up with 25% in the acetazolamide group, citing that there's no prior literature to to support it. Um, They wanted a target sample size for 494 patients. And based on potential withdrawal, they targeted an enrollment of 519 patients to achieve that target. They also did a nice thing of they did this worst case scenario analysis so that if the messes up in terms of the protocol had gone in the wrong direction would you would the effects still have been positive which i thought yeah was we see that we'll, we'll definitely talk about that in the results because that was that was an interesting part they did something that i think we'll see more in studies coming up is they did a uh, pre-specified subgroup analysis and SARS-CoV-2 sensitivity analysis just to make sure there was no interaction there in some unclear, unanticipated way. I think we'll, as these studies come out that have significant portions before and after the COVID pandemic, they'll need to do this. I think we're just going to have an easier time enrolling people in heart failure trials. Why is that? I think we're seeing more rates of cardiac disease post-COVID. Interesting. Don't have hard data for that, just uh, some initial studies looking at it. Okay. Anything else on methods that we want to talk about? The statistical models, they... They just for like the stratification variables, I think they had EF in there, I think in the randomization perhaps, because they're adjusting for that. But the overall study doesn't adjust for baseline factors, which can improve your power of your study, especially for this sort of modest size study that might have helped improve their power. And then the other thing I thought was a little strange, they they looked at hospitalization days, but they use like a linear model. I think some people advocate for using a a Poisson or something that deals with skewed data better. But uh, I don't think it make, really makes a difference given there's not that much of a difference in this study. Okay. Sophia, hit us with some results. All right, let's get to the meat. Let's see, 2,915 patients were screened, 519 met criteria, 
and 259 were randomized to the acetazolamide arm and 260 to the placebo arm. Three patients in the intervention arm and one in the control did not receive the intended intervention. And then just getting to some of the characteristics, 63% approximately were male, 99% were white. That makes sense. We're in a Belgian population. The blood pressure that was, uh, the mean blood pressure was 127 over 72. Median GFR was 39. And 82% had a GFR less than 60. The mean home, excuse me, the median home furosemide equivalent dose was 60 milligrams in the placebo group and 80 milligrams in the acetazolamide group. And then 57% had NYHA class 3 heart failures and 50% were on neural humoral blockade, 81% on beta blockade, MRAs, 42%. This isn't Belgian specific, but you know, median or average age here is 78 and a half. If you look at the dose trial, it was like 66. So heart failure patients are aging. It's a geriatric population. Do those ACE inhibitor numbers look low to you? Just around 50%? For heart well, the, the, per, the percentage of EF less than 40 was 40, was a 42%. So. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Though it is okay. interesting that the beta blocker rate is so high with such a so low high, ACE inhibitor and, and rate. No, and no advantage in beta blockers for preserved ejection fraction either. But, yeah. but a lot of them had AFib, so that was probably why they're getting Yeah, yeah. 72% have AFib. 72%. Yeah, really high. Oh, I missed that. That is interesting. Okay, cool. Oh, there's the plural effusion. All right, effusion so moving on. That, that's, you're right, 50% with plural effusions. Right, but how big? I think just the presence on chest x-ray, which I think would be common seeing some blunting of the angles. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for our primary outcome of successful decongestion, 42% achieved that in the acetazolamide group versus 305 in the control arm. The mean urine output uh, on the second morning after randomiz- randomization was 4.6 liters, and those receiving the acetazolamide in 4.1, so 0.5 difference. And then the higher natriuresis was seen in the acetazolamide group with a mean 468 millimoles versus 369 millimoles. So 100 millimoles difference. 100 millimoles of sodium in half a liter of fluid. Made all the difference. Does that make small. sense? That seems weird. That sounds, that sounds like 200 millimoles per liter concentration of sodium in that fluid. Seems high. Am I thinking about that right or am I not thinking about that right? And where did they put the weight data? No weight data. Not that I thought, at least. Am I wrong? Is that a joke? Just like from the last that, time? Uh, Are you going to yeah. ask that like a million times like, in this? That was idea. <laughs> she was rough, man. <laughs> wow. All right, so the primary endpoint was consistent across subgroups as well, but all favored acetazolamide. For our secondary outcomes... They they called out in their discussion that the patients on the higher dose of diuretics had less benefit from acetazolamide. You can see that in the uh, force plot. Yeah, so these things weren't pre-specified or powered, so they don't have P's for interaction, but that does seem to be something you can observe that... If you're on higher doses of diuretic, it seems to probably not as beneficial. These are all exploratory ideas. Uh, and then in terms of heart events, though, like there was slightly higher mortality in the acetazolamide group, although none of these things are significant. But if you want to look at safety and look at how underpowered it is, there was 15.2% of death at three months in acetazolamide versus 12% in the other hazard ratio is very wide. 
And we have no data. We have no data on what their congestion was at discharge. Their congestion score was at discharge, right? That's the whole game in these heart failure patients to make sure they're well decongested at the time of discharge. Is that right? No, we have we have that info. I, I gotta find were, it. It was in the were, su- yeah. it was in the supplement. But they were they they yeah they yeah find it. I, I thought they were better, still better than the acetazolamide group at discharge. It was. I mean, there's no symptom scale, so it's based on this newly created scale and what that means. Yeah, so it was um, in the acetazolamide group. Seventy eight point eight percent were decongested at discharge, and in the placebo group, it was sixty two and a half percent. So about oh. a sixteen percent difference. Oh, that's a pretty good spread there. Okay, and that did not result in any improvement in this three-month outcome data, death slash readmission. But but for for I guess Bobak and David, does any inpatient acute decompensated heart failure intervention show improvement in mortality or or anything at three? I mean, what what has ever shown improvement in that outcome? Rehospitalization risk. So. SGLT2s, inpatient yeah. initiation, so... Impulse. Yeah, impulse. You get benefits on harder outcomes. You get uh, KCCQ scores. And then they also have good uh, urinary output augmentation data for SGLT2s, at least, in the ampa uh, hf study that was in circulation uh, in June of this year. But but yeah. that what was that? That wasn't ADHF, was it? Uh, yeah, it was. Yes, yeah, so Am- Impulse was... Impulse was and MPAG HF was. So there was single center SGLT2s, and they said you inpatient initiation uh, for acute decompensated heart failure increased urine output by about 25% over a median of five days. So you had much larger profound response and you know, reduction in events and impulse. But did they have a reduction in their weight? Uh, yeah, I think they did report weight. <laughs> Well done, Jordy. Bringing that back around. I like it. (laughs) All right. Well, let me just summarize our secondary outcomes so that we're a little bit more organized in this. So from a secondary endpoint perspective, death from any cause or re-hospitalization for heart failure, there was uh, no difference between the group. The mean duration of index hospitalization was 8.8 days in the acetazolamide arm and 9.9 days in the control arm. And then as Nan had pointed out, um, in the exploratory endpoints, the successful decongestion at discharge among patients who were alive favored the acetazolamide group. And then finally, safety. There was no difference in safety. And that includes during the treatment phase or during the three-month follow-up, specifically metabolic acidosis, hypokalemia, hypotension, and then our renal safety endpoints as well. So I'll tell you what my worry is about this, the whole idea behind it. I mean, I think the the goal here is to try and decongest people and do this as rapidly and effectively as you can. And so I think people have gotten become in love with this idea that rapid decongestion is a good goal. Uh, and that's because in stu- in like controlled studies, those people that get rapidly decongested do better and have lower mortality and better outcomes in the long run. But of course, what you could be doing simply is saying those people who are le- who are not as sick yeah. respond better to the diuretics. Yeah. And so you're selecting a subpopulation. If that were the case, then you wouldn't expect a trial like this to have a positive long-term benefit outcome because it's really a selection process that you're doing rather than a therapeutic 
intervention that's working. And so I, I worry a little bit that, that, that's, that the, the, the whole underlying concept is a little bit flawed. On the other hand, it probably is a good thing to decongest people, and they probably do feel better. If you did a, an analysis of their symptoms, you might find that they, they feel better. And so I don't know this necessarily bad, but in terms of long-term outcomes, you know, the difference with an SGLT2 is you don't just put them on it and take them off. Whereas this is a, something you put them on for a couple of days and take them off. So it would be in, in some ways very surprising that, that at three months they're living longer. So, so I, I think it may be a good, a desirable, beneficial thing to do. But I worry about uh, the fact that it's just, it's just identifying a population that's more responsive to, to diuretics in, in, the, in the old trials. And then you're targeting this in the new trial and it's not looking like it's going to save a lot of lives. I don't know if I'm saying that clearly, but... I mean, but yeah, you are. I mean, getting out of the hospital a day earlier, that's a concrete benefit that is patient-oriented. Yeah. The whole issue with studying this is heart failure patients come in severely volume overloaded, dysmic, symptomatic, and it's been very hard to think about why, how you would randomize them to something that you know, a therapy we've been using for so long that is one of the first therapies for heart failure is to decongest them and help diurese them. And, and I feel like the DOSE trial had a well-formulated research question, even though if you, if you go back and visit the number of events and what strong conclusions you can draw from it, it's, it's kind of limited, but they actually tested, well, is it better to put these patients on a continuous drip versus, you know, bolus dosing? And how is more maybe a more gentle approach compared to a much higher dose approach in terms of, of output? And, and you see some benefits for, you know, higher dosing, getting people decongested faster. And I think my problem with this study is I don't really understand the question. If prevailing practice is to augment with diazides and, and you're, the main outcome you're really looking at is at a three-day endpoint, how much extra diuresis did you get? And so, you know, it's more like how, how should we just, the next part of this question is what, what's the best strategy? What are the next steps to do? You know, ultrafiltration had all these concerns and adverse outcomes, VAPTANs, et cetera, haven't really panned out, but maybe why not compare to thiazides, uh, uh, something that people are commonly doing and, and see is there a difference in th- how we augment? But do we even need to augment yet? You know, that's a big issue. Like, oh, maybe I should take from this not, you know, these aren't our resistant, um, diuretic resistant patients. These are patients we're coming in who actually have been responsive to diuretics and have some exacerbation for some reason. So perhaps doubling their diuretic isn't what we should be doing, but we should be tripling their loop diuretic. And then we don't even need to reach for an acetazolamide. That's a real question. I mean, if we were testing somebody who's got resist, you know, diuretic resistance, then I'd be interested, like acetazolamide versus metolazone. But this to me is like, I don't quite know how to interpret these results in terms of how I would be practicing. I think almost as important as the primary outcomes of the trial was the lack of adverse events with acetazolamide, right? What we're searching for is what, what do we have in our toolkit? to decongest patients to, again, avoid ultrafiltration dialysis. We know those are fraught with problems. I'm not saying that this study answered that, but it showed that acetazolamide is safe. We can go down the rabbit hole of thinking about, you know, maybe upfront therapy with acetazolamide might prevent things like metabolic alkalosis that you get with escalating loop diuretic therapy alone. 
metabolic alkalosis reduces your diuretic efficiency by 20 to 40 percent you know these curves kept separating acetazolamide is a chloride regaining diuretic if you believe in the chloride theory of heart failure there's potentially other mechanisms that are helpful here but i agree this study in and of itself didn't answer a lot of those questions i do like though your argument and why you guys have instituted is it because of the proximal reabsorption of sodium that it actually makes sense to be grabbing for acetazolamide from that perspective. And I like that explanation as to why one would grab for that sooner rather than later. But that's more mechanistic and physiology than anything else. Bobek, what can you elaborate on? You, you couldn't understand what question they were answering or trying to get at. What question would you want to see answered in a you know, 600-person trial of acute decompensated heart failure? I think that you're, so, they're sort of hampered with the population they go for. So they picking patients that aren't too sick. They're sort of floor-based, seems like, patients. And it's also a different healthcare system where you look at the, the length of stay is like nine or 10 days. Yeah, that, that also was surprising to me. I was like, ooh, that's a long time. That's a long, yeah. And most of that is because other countries don't use our system of short-term rehab and other facilities to offload patients from the acute setting. And so they're, they might be used to more rounding regularly and making small tinkering adjustments. But I think in our hospitals, we are focused on rapid decongestion and trying to get people to a maintenance dose that's right for them. But yeah, I just I feel like in this population, you, you could see that, you know, the interaction chart if, uh, shows that if, if you're getting higher diuretics, if, you're real, if your goal is to really speed up diuresis, why not just give more higher dose diuretics if you, if you want that? I don't see any difference in adverse events either way. It's underpowered to detect anything that, that would suggest harm in either direction. I, I think that there is a consensus, and it sounds like, well, like you agree with this. I mean, that, that one should aim for relatively rapid decongestion if you have an acute decompensate heart failure patient. And, you know, certainly what I see just on our medical services is so many people come in with acute heart failure and end up having a liter to a liter and a half of urine out a day, dribbling along for a week and having no mm-hmm. real success. And I think that yeah. the goal of getting some sort of formulaic approach, which which forces people to ensure that you can achieve natriuresis and diuresis is laudable. And one approach is to do this, you know, the two to four hour, you know, sodium or or urine volume, and then double the dose. And yeah. there are algorithms that suggest that people just don't seem to do it. I think one of the reasons they wanted this is it's a formulaic approach where you could get people to diurese more rapidly. And so it may be good for patients, even though it's not, you know, perhaps God's gift, and it does appear to be safe. So, so I mean, I think there's some, you know, some some good things about this. But I think the clinical teaching here is more useful, you know, where teaching young physicians or those who don't routinely take care of heart failure is that when you give a diuretic, you need to set, especially IV inpatient, you want to assess in two to three hours if the patient's responding. And then if not, you need to double and augment what you're doing to continue to, to push urine output. And then the other thing that's commonly done is if a patient does come in with a, a lower GFR than their baseline, people become more apprehensive and use lower doses of a diuretic when they should probably use a much higher dose to, to make sure you're augmenting urine output. So I think that, that type of clinical teaching in this situation is much more useful than, oh, we're just going to blindly take everyone and give them some standard high-dose loop diuretic dose, and then we're going to give this other group another augmenting therapy right up front. If our guidelines currently say a thiazide is a preferred agent based on experience and clinical expertise, I mean, maybe the nephrologist can tell me why, you know, what, what's the risk of 
giving them a metolazone or... You know, Jeff Testani has an article, a, a retrospective article suggesting that using metolazone has a higher relative risk of bad outcomes. I think that's confounding yeah. by indication. I don't think you can, yeah. I don't think you can propensity match that away, but, I, that. but that's the word. <laughs> on, the other, on the other hand, we just had last week here a, a woman who died from hypokalemia after she was put on metolazone because she just started peeing out so yeah. much. I'll, I'll get on my soapbox. I think the problem there is that you know you, you don't know who the metolazone is going to just open up the spigot and be bad, or who is just going to make the key difference. And I think that that's mostly driven by chronic adaptations to high doses of loop diuretics. So it's usually people have been on 160 BID of furosemide, and then their distal tubule gets incredibly hypertrophic. And then when you unlock that hy hypertrophy by turning off the distal tubule with metolazone, suddenly they start peeing out not only sodium, but potassium and chloride for what that's worth. And, and you can really run into trouble. I, I believe that the real way we have to think about treating this is not when they come in acutely decompensated, but to find a more balanced way to approach their fluid management chronically so you don't get this incredible hypertrophy of the distal nephron that then creates the problems when you add distal diuretics. I'm trying to convince people that we're studying that in the lab right now trying to look at the remodeling. But I think that's a better approach in terms of long-term outcomes that might be more beneficial. Uh, but that's a worry with metolism. And that's what the 2019 or whatever study looking at acetazolamide from many of the authors in the same group showed is that you can use less doses of loop diuretics to achieve the same outcome. And, you know, maybe that's desirable. So outside of this perfect outpatient trial where we can prevent people from ever having acute decompensated heart failure, Bobak, what, what does the study look like that answers that your question? Because it sounds like really what we need maybe is implementation research, people just actually doing some of what we think works and seeing if that actually does work. Is, is that what you're asking for? Well, I mean, I think the main challenges for heart failure now are to use our class one and 2A indicated therapies. So SGLT2 uptake, it's remarkable the amount of risk reduction you get in mortality, all cause and hospitalization risk and the quality of life. So if anything, we're going to prioritize getting those agents on first before adding other diuretic. I think, I think if we're going to take our diuretic resistant population and study them separately, that would be interesting. But I think the, the core therapies are the ones where we have to close the gaps in care. And then, yeah, there probably is an opportunity to, in the inpatient setting, figure out the qualitative issues that, that are hampering optimal decongestion or the mistakes that continuously happen. And is there a way to better protocolize diuresis and monitoring so patient, patients get closer follow-up in terms of response to therapy? Using what outcome? In, a, in an RCT fashion, you're saying? How can we say yeah, that? <laughs> exactly. We still haven't decided what outcome we like. Yeah, I mean, for a heart failure population, you could look at length, length of stay would be probably better than three-day noisy signal and then and rehospitalization. The problem with length of stay, though, is... It's not evidence-based, right? It's it's the, you're really just looking at the the attending physician going, yeah, I think you're ready to go home, right? Like there's some novel outcomes people have proposed. So like hospital-free days, you can look at the index admission at day one, and then look at hospital-free days at 30 days or 90 days, and see are you able to maintain a patient at home better with with some different protocol. Hard to analyze, though, but as you mentioned, so are uh, total duration of hospital stay because these are all yeah. very non, uh, these, these are, they're very skewed outcome measures. So you have to think very carefully about how you're going to compare them and power them. 
some of the heart failure studies have started doing these very cool hierarchical outcomes where you um, create tiers of duration of hospitalization. And then for those people who get discharged, how long they're out of the hospital for. Then for those people who are sicker, they get sort of ranked earlier if they die. They get actually included as part of that sort of composite outcome um, and like ranked for time to death. And so you can give people credit for all of the bad outcomes all in one in one composite outcome that's a combination of binary and continuous outcomes. It's pretty cool, pretty novel, but pretty hard to interpret because you can't really then extrapolate it to other populations. Yeah, Impulse does that. They use the win ratio. And so I think that was a really elegantly done study and you can see good comparisons. But yeah, the win ratios issue is how do you translate that to a patient in terms of it means you're more likely to do a lot better than a similar patient who didn't get this treatment. Yeah, I, had, I presented part of the that results this a uh, couple of weeks ago, and it was very difficult. And I ended up abandoning that primary outcome when I talked about it and looking at some of the other outcomes, just because I, I, I just, I couldn't find a way to describe what that win ratio was in a compelling way. My one concern with this trial is I think it's going to be misinterpreted by non-cardiologists and non-nephrologists. And even I, I presented this as journal club and everybody's like, oh, we're so excited. We can now use acetazolamide and everybody's applying it to our, I keep on coming back to this, but to our diuretic resistant population. And this just doesn't apply to them at all. And I the sequential sodium blockade is definitely important, and but we, we apply that more aggressively in our diuretic resistance, and they think that that's really where this role is. And maybe there is a role for acetazolamide. Clearly, Nan has seen anecdotal evidence for that where he's practicing, but I just I just feel like it's going to be misapplied by a large population of, of people. But I don't, I don't know if it's misapplied because we don't really, we, have, we don't have anything for diuretic resistance outside of you give them a thiazide. We don't have anything else right i mean it, i mean theoretically we could give them mineral corticoid receptor but, but, yeah, but well, you, where's you, the data you, for you, that yeah where's exactly. the data for that sure i mean that's kind of what we do in heart failure yeah, patients have, already half ref there's an indication for it so but even with those right like to that, get the naturetic doses of those you need 100 no, 200 yeah, milligrams yeah. for naloctone right so not you're, you're, it's not the tw- it's not the 25 milligrams you're using for the antifibrotic sure. effects for yeah. heart failure with with you know reduced ejection fraction well, in the Athena trial, for what it was worth, worth was negative. For I'm MR. sorry, what's the Athena trial? It, it was MR antagonists in acute decompensated heart failure, but that I thought so that was a, been studied. That, yeah, negative. that was a, but that was a very bad study because there were no changes in potassium, and and you know it takes 72 hours or so to really get your spironolactone to kick in very much. So I think that was like placebo versus placebo, and that's been speculated on, you know. But I mean, to be honest, we use more amylaride than spironolactone acutely for for achieving naturesis in these folks, and we switch them to spironolactone before discharge. Faster onset. Yeah. But- okay. Final thoughts. Let's go around the horn. David, final thoughts? I think this is a provocative trial. I know here at this place, at, at OHSU, they're already using this on the cardiology service. I think, uh, you know, based on uh, the safety, it's something that can be done for acute decompensated heart failure that may be helpful. But I agree with Sophie that, you know, this isn't for diuretic resistance. And we have to make sure we are clear about what the indications are and aren't. And when you say that they're using it at OHSU, is that a, was this practice changing? Did, did this open the eyes and start changing people? You're seeing a lot more cesolamide. Two weeks after it was published, the cardiologist started using it in the acute decompensated heart failure population. Sure, absolutely. No, honestly, what you're saying is what I heard. Like there, when this got announced at AHA, it was an abstract presentation. I don't know if it was simultaneous with the NEJM article, but people were super excited about it. Right. 
So they were using that and SGLT2 inhibitors? Well, yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. It's totally unknown. No one has any idea whether this is going to be additive because SGLT2 inhibitors, much of their natriuresis is caused by inhibiting NHE3 and not SGLT2. Right. So they're acting in that way just right. the same as acetazolamide. We don't know. Okay. Jordy, final thoughts? I'm going to keep using acetazolamide for altitude sickness. <laughs> 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 that on that's not that great too. With very, very careful volume replacement. <laughs> By the way, Joel, I did happen upon, I think, some like YouTube thing about you trying to describe a acetazolamide use for altitude sickness. Was that you? It sounded like your soothing Joel voice. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, th- that sounds like me. The best <laughs> chapter on it is Guyton and Hall. I love it. They have an entire section dedicated to it. It's absolutely fantastic. Bye-bye. What do you got? I'll say I, I don't find this practice changing. I think it, it's nice that people are doing randomized studies of interventions and but i think these are kind of surrogate outcomes in your urinary output with a very noisy signal without the background of sglt2s it calls it to question you know what additional value there is but it's nice to see that there's some other thoughts in terms of the the benefits and yeah i don't think it's practice changing nine what do you got i agree with david it's a provocative trial you know i'm i'm biased we've been using this for years again anecdotally we have success we we use you know two hour post diuretic urine sodiums to determine diuretic efficacy and and so we're escalating therapy very quickly and and after the thiazides we'll we'll generally go to acetazolamide versus amiloride and then you know hypertonic saline or whatever we're using i think there's other effects of acetazolamide that are probably beneficial, um, but this is all speculative. We don't we don't know that for sure. I think the main thing is there's really no adverse effects other than the champagne blues, which patients who take it know is a very real thing. Uh, but other than that, describe, it's, it's for the people that don't know immediately what you're talking about. Can you uh, describe what the champagne blues are? It's well known that taking acetazolamide changes your taste perception, particularly to carbonated beverages. So there was a really nice letter to the editor back in 1980 to describe this team of hikers that were climbing, you know, summited some mountain and had taken a six pack with them and were sorely disappointed that it tasted like dishwater uh, because <laughs> they couldn't they couldn't taste the carbonation. That seems like that's a major amazing. side effect. I would. <laughs> I really. I, that's how there. that's how they described I, it. I've been. So can I, I will uh, verify. Go ahead, Jordy. Uh, Nan, I just want to say I was I was sort of uh, pimping Bobak on his uh, perfect trial. I, my perfect trial would be your algorithm that you use as an implementation study, a step wedge or, or a cluster RCT of trying this in other health systems. Because this sounds incredible, but it also sounds potentially really hard to do uh, without very specific resources and buy-in by all parties. But if it could be done, then it really, I think, is what would count. We see that this works in so many other areas, like Kaiser's amazing blood pressure algorithm, where they started people on, on a fixed-dose combination antihypertensive therapies and got everybody to blood pressures of less than 120 long before anyone else ever even thought about doing that. Uh, and I feel like we could achieve something similar here if only people tried. Let me know. Let's do it. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, count me in. I have great. no pull whatsoever on <laughs> the heart failure service here, but count me in. <laughs> I think I get to have some. Yeah, Sophia, you're, 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 you're right up. Um, yeah. I, I know I've kind of poo-pooed things a little bit, but I actually am intrigued. I do like the idea of its mechanism of action. I don't know where it's going to go with the SGLT2 inhibitors, but I do feel inclined that I might reach for one sooner than maybe I have historically. You know, as we're still trying to decongest somebody, I'm seeing their bicarb go up, we're having some problems with potassium. You know, it, it may I may be more inclined to say, hey, this seems like the perfect opportunity to go for it. So I, I feel like it does have some promise. It, it is provocative. It is intriguing. 
And it does have a mechanistic, I'm going to say that it does have a mechanism which seems plausible as to be something that would be beneficial for our patients where we really do mess up their electrolytes when we are diuresing them aggressively and perhaps it could counteract some of the loop diuretic that we're doing. Yeah, maybe 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 it's time we could uh, take a take a page from the uh, lupus community and start thinking about uh, furosemide sparing therapies, right? Instead of just constantly cranking up the furosemide to higher higher doses, maybe we need to think a little bit bigger and and talk about and talk about other drugs. To me, like I, I hope this is the sign that we're more receptive to uh, sequential nephron blockade in the way not just that what we do, but in terms of what we study, and that hopefully this will be followed. Uh, by the same group or by a different group looking at thiazides and uh, and then maybe in a combination or a head-to-head type of trial. Uh, how about a three how about a three arm trial of ferrosamide versus acetazolamide plus ferrosamide versus uh, ferrosamide plus metolza? Take a look at uh, some of these other options. But again, I, I you know I, I think Jordy going on what what is the outcome that you want to look at? I think is unclear. I think it's I think that's a hard question to answer. I guess it, the interesting thing to me was when this study came out, there was a lot of excitement. And the more I read it, the less excited I get, right? There's, there isn't a lot here. Okay. Jordy, you said uh, you had a uh, tubular secretion. You want to start us off? Yeah, sure. I have a, the dorkiest of tubular secretions. So I've been missing you several. Count on you for that. <laughs> yeah, this this was a little a little different than usual. It's not uh, related to any Star Trek. Uh, so my I, I, I missed the last few episodes because I now have a six month old, and uh, several family members are aware of how nerdy of a hypertension person I am. And so I after a couple of enough madnesses, there were, were animal houses involving the giraffe. Uh, there was one where it talked about giraffe hypertension physiology. Another one, most recently, talking about the very very cool uh, tubular glomerular feedback mechanisms of giraffes and I talk about giraffes a lot and so my daughter now has six giraffe stuffed animals and we'll be going as a giraffe for Halloween Uh, I imagine I'll be hearing about this sometime when she's about 16 years old (laughs) nice excellent nine do you have something yeah I think I'm late you guys might have read this has anybody read the butchering art by Lindsay Fitzharris this is this is a great book if anybody's looking for something to read. It's a it's essentially a biography of of Joseph Lister and how he transformed Victorian medicine through you know germ theory, etc. You know sterile techniques and and the way it's written is just really really good for something that could be dry, but it's fascinating. Tells you all about the historical perspective where where we're at you know compared to where we are now. It's 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 a very very good book. Uh, I got through it pretty quickly. Um, it's about five years old now. But I just discovered it, you know, a couple, nice. you know, about a month ago. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Bob, what you got? Yeah, getting ready for Halloween. I have to look at my Zoom schedule to see when I can uh, shave my beard and work on twisting my mustache for Captain Hook. And uh, my kids will be the rest of the Peter Pan characters. Who gets to be Tinkerbell? Uh, my daughter, she's four, and my youngest son is going to be the crocodile, and my oldest son is Peter Pan. And I found a nice TikTok. Uh, audio clips so that I can have my son in the crocodile outfit sound like uh, the real crocodile. And my wife is... is, there a, is your wife, your wife Wendy? is Wendy. My wife is Wendy. I, I thought with the beard you might be going as Wendy, but no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> David, you got something? 
So I was on call on a weekend about probably a year ago, and I got a call from a cardiologist who'd been challenged by some of the nephrologists because he had two patients who were very congested, and he was trying to, and he was successfully diuresing them. Their creatinines kept going up and up, and not, not up a ton, but up some, and, and the nephrologist said, back away. And I said, go for it. Keep going after it. You're decongesting them. You, everybody should be happy. And so he <laughs> said, well, let's start working together. So I just, uh, we went to our third cardiorenal clinic last week that we're working together, and and actually, it's miraculous because I saw things that, that he didn't think of. So this, we had a, a patient who was on dialysis and had heart failure and who was on peritoneal dialysis. And I asked her if she, well, she used to be on hemo and I asked her to look at her fistula and she had this giant fistula out like here and he'd never, never yeah. would have thought of that. So uh, I, I hope that we are, we're melding our minds and no longer fighting. And that's, that's one of my missions in life is to, uh, is to work on how we get along better and learn from each other. We have to, we have all of these goal-directed therapy medications that no one else knows how to prescribe right now, especially with the finerenone that's coming on board. So I, I think that we really need to be working in, in the same realm and working together to care for our I patients. agree with you, Sophia. I'm optimistic we can. I The, the cardiologists here have actually, I was joking that I'm not a heart failure service person. Uh, they've invited me to be on literally every single weekly heart failure or HEFPEF call because I run a HEFPEF trial here and like include me and I'm like interpreting echoes with them and things like that. So there, I, I think that there is definitely room for cardiologists and nephrologists to be working together. I think we should call it cardiorenal syndrome or something like, you know, that just just perpetuate an existing title and, and, and own it. Well, where do I take my punch card for coming on this uh, nephrology podcast? I get my second punch card. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a few more, and you'll get you'll get the smoking jacket. We have enough pretty filtered smoking jacket for you. So that you know, just, just I, I feel find very your welcome. time. I feel yeah, very that's right. I think I think we're gonna have a finerenone uh, heart failure results that we'll have to discuss pretty soon. So so keep keep keep, keep, keep my car out there. Yeah, <laughs> the Rolodex is hot. So I just got back from Germany. We were visiting my son who's doing a semester abroad in the town of Lunebert, which is absolutely delightful. And while we were there, my wife fell and broke her fibula. And so we had to go to the Lunenburg uh, Regional Hospital and experience uh, German healthcare. And it was incredible. It was it was very German, right? It was very efficient. It was very quick. We were in and out with uh, x-ray evaluation, uh, pain medications, all within two hours and, uh, and an air cast. So uh, all's well that ends well. It kind of changed the plans of the trip, but it was a, a new experience. We won't, we won't. Okay, guys, I will see most of you in Orlando in a week or so. That's amazing. Yeah.